Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook. If you would like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Um, but tonight we are so very happy to have uh, Brian Long back at the store. Um, I remember when his short story collection came out, and we were thrilled about that, and we were thrilled with his next book, and we're just happy to have him here. I think that the only sad thing is that he left Los Angeles, actually, to, um, to do some fine work in Kentucky, but he's back today. Um, and if you're not familiar with his work... Uh, Brian is the author of the novel Lost Men and the short story collection World Famous Love Acts, a winner of the Asian American Literary Award and the Mary McCarthy, Ma Mary McCarthy Prize in Short Fiction. He was born and raised in San Diego County and currently lives in Louisville, Kentucky, where he's an associate professor of creative writing at the University of Louisville. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Brian Long. Hello everyone, thanks to Skylight. This is, I guess, about every three years. 2004, 2007, 2010. So can we all promise to meet back here in 2013? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I'm someone who comes out with a book every six months, yeah. Um, yeah, it's really great to be back in Los Angeles and um, I do want to give a shout out to well, I guess everybody here, I, I mean, there aren't any, I think, barely any unfamiliar faces here, a couple, which is, uh, kind of nice. Um, so I guess I can't really shout out because I'll embarrass the people I don't shout out. But my aunt and uncle are here, Andy Ann and Uncle James, and I, I appreciate that coming over from the west side, which is practically like me coming from Louisville. Um, and my cousin Jessica, who's here from, can I say from Spain? Can I just say that? From Barcelona, yeah. And uh, uh, Roland Thompson, who's in, in the back, uh, who came from Palm Springs, and uh, I, I want to say uh, that Roland is actually the reason why in 1990 I moved to Los Angeles and we shacked up in a little bungalow in Silver Lake. Um, <clears throat> and I remember when I first came up here and he, he was like picking out the place we were going to live and he showed me the neighborhood and, I, and it was in Silver Lake and he was driving me around Echo Park and all that. I was like, oh, really? <laughs> really? And then I never left, so um, yeah. Um, and where is she? Mary Bush, who was my, my uh, fantastic creative writing teacher at Cal State uh, Los Angeles, both as an undergrad and it's for my MA. And um, I guess I do want to uh, let everyone know that my dearest friend in the world, Alice Davis, is sitting up front here. And um, she, I'm going to embarrass her a little bit. Um, you don't know her, perhaps, some of you don't know her, but you've, if you've ever been to Disneyland and ridden the Pirates of the Caribbean or Small World, Alice, did, back in the 60s, did the costume design and construction of Pirates of the Caribbean and, and uh, Small World. So uh, she's given us a lot of joy and also a lot of uh, savings on hotel expenses um, for me. <laughs> Okay, um, I, I'd really try to trim this down for you. I'm only reading for 75 minutes. And um, uh, I, I'm <clears throat> going to set up the novel a little bit and then just read three little sections from it. Um, and then if you have any questions afterwards, I'm more than happy to answer them. <coughs> but you don't have to an <coughs> uh, ask me any pity questions. If that's okay, too. Um, afterwards, uh, uh, 
Alice and I are uh, having dinner at the Dresden. Uh, we have reservations at 9.30, but between the end of the reading and, um, and our dinner reservations, we will be having a cocktail. So any of you who wish to come and chat with me um, and or Alice or any of the other interesting people who are in my cohort uh, should come down to the Dresden and have a cocktail. Um, and uh, I guess that's it. Okay, so um, lo uh, lost men. Whoops, it's been three years in the past. Um, <clears throat> uh, t Take Me Home. I forgot the name of the novel. Take Me Home is set in Wyoming in 1885, and it's um, uh, the background event. It was a massacre of Chinese miners um, in Rock Springs, Wyoming, and there was 28 miners uh, killed, stabbed, burned alive. Um, and um, uh, basically the, the, the Chinese <coughs> encampment was totally obliterated. Um, the Union Pacific Railroad who, uh, and the coal company, which are kind of combined, um, you know, managed to bring all of those, well, the living Chinese miners back. And um, this was really the flashpoint for a lot of the racial tension against the Chinese in, in the West and in the Pacific Northwest. Um, I do want to say that, um, that Tom Alvarez went to Wyoming with me to help me research this book and I, I really appreciate that. Um, I needed a historian by my side otherwise I wouldn't have known how long to look at what I was looking at. So I'm not, I'm not reading from the novel sequentially. I'm going to skip around a little bit, <clears throat> hopefully, just to give you an idea of <clears throat> what's up now that you have the kind of the background. Um, the two main characters are Addie Maine. Addie's a young woman who's traveled from Kentucky to, um, to Wy the Wyoming Territory to homestead with her brother. And um, Wing Lee has uh, came to uh, California in 1875 fled San Francisco and has ended up working in the coal camp. And this, this part of the, the book takes place just as Addie's first arriving in uh, Wyoming territory. <clears throat> it was mid-afternoon when Addie finally got on the train going to Rock Springs. The bright cloudless sky was comforting as an embrace. Addie gripped her cloth sack and leaned against the window. Cheyenne was a surprisingly orderly city, but on a grid that lipped right up to the train tracks. But the precision made her nervous, made her feel hemmed in. It was certainly a change from what she'd seen coming into Cheyenne. Wyoming territory, the expanse of it all, gave her a grand new feeling, as if all her life she'd been living in a crate and someone came along, ripped off the top, and let all four sides drop away. It seemed as if a person, even a woman, could stand and walk off in any direction they chose. Where else could she think such a thing? The land didn't give you much to work with, it was true. But on the other hand, it looked so swept clean that not much was bound to get in your way. And the thing about heading out for fresh places, she decided, was not that she was getting dumber, but that there was a new thing to learn every five feet. It was enough to wear a person out. Hey, Kate. Rock Springs was just hours off, and she felt safe enough to take a nap, <clears throat> though she peered down the length of the car at the other passengers just to be sure. 
Maybe weeks earlier, some of them might have given her a reason for pause, but now the dusty lot was unexceptional. A father, mother, and son wearily leaning on each other. A paunchy man with a raccoon tail for a beard. His companion, a baggy-eyed colored man wearing a brass button vest and clutching a fiddle case. And at the far end, a gray-haired woman and her even grayer husband biting into what Addie thought at first was an apple, but took to be a brandy wine when juice dripped off her chin. What must Addie look like to these passengers, she wondered. A green-eyed pile of dirt? Not someone to rob, that was for sure. She closed her eyes to the clomp of boots and plopped down bags <clears throat> and the plop down bags of other riders, which became, as she fell asleep, the sound of chopping wood. Then there was the vision of her mother, her dress soaked with perspiration as she swung an axe down and threw a piece of maple standing on end, splitting it near perfect as she always did with each strike. Addie's mother looked at the divided wood and the growing, growing pile, and then all around her, no daughter or son nearby to carry it away. I'm right here, Addie wanted to call out, but her dream would not let her. So her mother continued, wiping her face between each perfect blow, never pausing to take aim. She didn't need to. Her mother's hands held an axe so often they had a mind of their own. They were hands made for God's earth, her grandmother used to say. But if that was true, Addie had always thought he certainly made the rest of the body suffer for it. Addie had felt the thick calluses of her mother's palms passed as soft as they could over her cheek, the tenderness a contradiction of sensation, like coming upon a barbed wire coil set around April Lark Spur. With a jolt of the train, Addie popped awake. It had been precious too little time asleep, though as she looked out the window, she saw they'd made it outside Cheyenne. Here again was the land she preferred, the distant horizon meeting clear sky, calling to mind the shoreline of an impossibly blue lake. It was a wonder people chose to cram themselves together in Cheyenne, <clears throat> rather do than what her brother had, get a piece of land and spread your arms as wide as you choose. You must have been very tired, a woman sitting next to her said. It was the first time Addie noticed she had a companion. Every inch of me, she said, focusing on the sturdy, scrubbed clean woman who had tightly drawn gray hair that kept streaks of its former brown. Her dress was the powdery green of poplar buds, but tidy as she was, her yellowish, rough-looking hands gave away the fact she'd known hard work. I figured I'd better sit here when I saw that you was all alone. A girl your age, it ain't safe. The woman looked around the boxcar in disapproval. Sure ain't the Palmer house. Addie, I had no idea what that meant but she got the gist. And just exactly what age did she think Addie was? Thank you, but I do all right. She looked herself over, wondering how that was going to stay true if they made women wear dresses out here. Boots, pants, boys' shirts that buttoned up the middle, and a leather vest did her fine, she thought. The train was going, was going at a good, noisy clip, which made the pair lean into each other to hear what the other was saying. You from down near Kentucky by any chance? The woman asked. Addie perked up, cu curious now. Down near? Thought I could hear it. Get pretty good at these things like that when you live in the territory. Everyone's speaking this way and that. Most days you don't meet two people from even close to the same place. Unless you're in the mine camps, I suppose. Then you got all them coolies and fins and such thick as thieves. Coolies and fins? Addie searched her mind. Already there were a few more words that, sh that she didn't know. She assumed this woman must be talking about people, but they sounded to her like they were different kinds of fish. 
Oh, young lady, the woman sighed, shaking her head as if the Addie was at grave risk. She smoothed down the front of her dress. Where exactly are you going? My brother is meeting me up in Rock Springs, then to his homestead. Addie paused. Rock Springs was her destination, then her brother's place. But where she was headed, just fe headed felt just then like a question without an answer. The woman huffed and again looked up and down the length of the boxcar. Homesteading? Outside Rock Springs? And you come alone? Addie nodded. Then I best fill you in on a few things. The woman held out a palm and jabbed her finger into it. Whatever land your brother sits on, see to it you got drinkable water. Don't know of many homesteading folks in those parts ain't met with but heartache. She took a deep breath as if <clears throat> what she was about to say would take a lungful. And when you get to Rock Springs, you stay away from the coolies. The Finns is okay if they aren't drinking, but the coolies are the most savage lot you'll ever meet. If they get a chance, they'll snatch a baby out of a mother's arms and eat it right in front of her. And, and at night, they go underground into their burrows doing all manner of deviltry. What was it, Addie wondered, about the women in these parts that turned them all into the preacher's wife? And if this woman was purposely trying to frighten Addie, it was working. She wasn't sure if she wanted to hear more. Outside, the landscape suddenly wasn't comforting at all. The sunlight had a weight to it, seemed to press down on every living thing, left the world flat and dry, the brush more gray than green, the clumps separated and solitary like a wandering army in disarray. And then ahead, Addie caught sight of a dozen or so strange-looking animals, not dogs or deer or cows, not goats either, but still four-legged. They had long black snouts, tan backsides, white bellies, and one of them had a pair of evil-looking black horns shaped like the pinchers of an earwig. Are those coolies? Addie asked, pointing as the train passed the animals. She'd seen them once or twice on her travels, but never this close. The woman looked out the window and then at Addie. Her face held an expression that fell somewhere between worry and sympathy. You are a green one, she chuckled. Those are pronghorn. Wouldn't hurt a fly, she said, her chuckle evolving into an outright laugh. Addie didn't appreciate being called green, nor the fact that this woman she didn't know from Adam was laughing at her. Then how will I know a coolie if I see one? The woman, was com woman composed herself, nesting her hands in her lap. That's the, the bit of good news. You can't miss them. They got eyes like cats and tails that grow out of the back of their heads and down the length of their bodies. Front teeth like rats and skin so yellow and oily if you ever got hold of one, he'd slip right through your fingers. As the woman spoke, Addie tried to conjure the monster being described. She'd never seen anything like it, and she wondered if they were so terrible why they weren't gotten rid of. She asked the woman as much. They import them from California work in the coal mines, she said. Those devils are so used to living underground they don't mind the dark one bit. I bet if they didn't have to eat, they'd do it for free. Addie was beginning to sum it up. How long does it take to train one? I'm sure I have no idea. The woman was becoming impatient. Well, Addie continued, you ever come face to face with one yourself? I certainly keep my distance. She assumed a prim posture. And if you know what's good for you, you will too. Addie assured the woman she had no intention of getting anywhere near a coolie and that she was grateful for the information. Then they sat for a few minutes without a word between them while Addie thought about the warning. Maybe if she could get a rope somewhere, she could catch one and train it. She'd once seen a man with a dog that wore a pink skirt and balanced on a large blue ball. Maybe people would pay to see a coolie do the same thing. Maybe a coolie was no worse than a cat if you trained it right. 
The woman looked at Addie with obvious pity. I didn't mean to worry you. Oh, I ain't worried. I was just wondering how I might catch one and keep it for a pet. Young lady, she said sternly, pressing so close to Addie's ear she felt the warmness of her breath. I'm pretty sure no John is going to want you to be your pet. John? Addie was confused. I'm talking about a coolie. The woman sat up and rolled her eyes, exasperated but catching on. John Chinaman, dear, she said loudly. John Chinaman, that is a coolie. You mean all this time you've been talking about men? The woman harumphed. I wouldn't go that far. <clears throat> so, um, that's kind of Addie's introduction. And as you might imagine, um, she's going to meet one of these uh, in the. She's going to meet one of these Chinamen, and um, yet that man is uh, Wing Lee, and um, they form in, in the novel. Their relationship is is wh what forms the heart of the story, and. Um, and you know, I don't think it's giving anything away to say that they have an incredible bond, um, but there's kind of an impossibility to the, to the the lengths to which they can take that that bond. And um, so, <clears throat> I've mentioned the rights before, and this is late in the novel, and I won't read all. I'm just going to read a page and a half of of this. But the novel uh, shares a point of view between Addie and Wingley, and. Um, the riots have already started. Um, they came in two. In, they came in two waves. There was a, the initial part of the riot. This is the historical part of it. The initial part of the riot, and then the white miners uh, retreated for a little while, and then there was a second rush. And uh, Wing Lee has taken cover underground under his cabin, um, so the floorboards are above him, and he's in between these two waves. And this is in uh, what's called uh, the Little San Fran. It's the nickname of the town, or of the, where the cab Chinese cabins are. Time passed slowly. It was the silent intervals that frightened Wing most because it meant that anything might happen next. Gave no clue as to whether it was all right to come out early from his hiding place. From his position, the light escaping through the trap door leading up to the ground floor of the barracks looked like a sliver of moon, made him smile despite the chaos above. It made him remember one of his great disappointments as a child during the moon festival when much of their family had come to stay with them. As they enjoyed mooncakes, Wing proudly announced that he had cataloged every moon he saw in the sky. Is that so, his father said with a raised eyebrow. His father wore a bright new outfit of black silk acquired just for the year, that year's festival. And how many are there? Wing produced a scroll from behind his back on which he'd drawn all the moons he observed over many weeks' time. The family continued with their tea and mooncakes as Wing's father opened the scroll and studied it. There were 24 separate objects, beginning with a thinner curve, gradually thickening to a full moon, then back again to a curve. Wing bit into his pastry, waiting for his father's evaluation. He squished the lotus seed paste between his tongue and the roof of his mouth, savoring his mother's inclusion of salted duck egg. This is quite impressive, his father said, showing the images to the rest of the table, the family applauding. But, Father, I have just one question, Wing said. On which moon does the goddess dance? 
He had heard the story many times about the woman whose husband shot down all the sons but one, and she drank an elixir that allowed her to fly to the moon. How do you mean, son? his father asked. If there are 24 moons revolving around the earth, Wing repeated, which one did the goddess fly to? The table erupted in laughter, his father once again holding up Wing's scroll of a hand-drawn moon cycle. When his father explained that there was just one such celestial object and Wing realized that the family's laughter was directed at him, he snatched the scroll and bolted from the table, swearing to himself he would never forgive them for the humiliation. Lying now beneath his barrack in Rock Springs with his fate unknown, he thought of the young version of himself, how children can find tragedy in even the smallest slight. His father's good-natured correction had been humiliating enough. Wing swore then he would never speak another word to any family member. If only that Wing could see his adult form in his present danger. These thoughts, the comparison, reinforced the urgency of his current situation, and he returned to the necessity of safeguarding the wood chest meant for Addie and their child. Instead of fleeing with it, he would bury it in the wall, and if he could define his life by one desire, it was that he would, he would see Addie's face again and find that burying the chest was an unnecessary precaution. He clenched his teeth, willing these things to come true, but as, as he stashed the chest in a narrow hole dug into the wall, backfilling it with dirt, pounding started above on the walls. He had lit three small lamps and now blew out two of them, upbraiding himself for not thinking about any light they might give off above. But if anyone detected it, surely they would have discovered him by now. He could tell that it was almost dark outside. Again gunshots and more pounding, then a strange halt to the barrage before a new sound emerged. At first he wasn't sure, but it sounded as if they were prying through the wood. That, that couldn't be right though. The crackling was too t timid. He thought to peek above, but it wasn't necessary by the time the smoke came to him, serpent-like. Um... So I'm going to finish with the, how the novel begins. Um, how are we doing? I haven't even paying attention to time, sorry. Okay, that's perfect. Okay. Oh, and I got a phone call too. Um, I'm sure it's regrets. Um, the way the novel is framed is that after all these events, um, Forty years later, Addie is asked to return um, by the, the Union Pacific Railroad um, to send off the, one of the last remaining Chinese miners from the period. And in Rock Springs, in real life, in, in the 1926-27, they did have some of these luncheons and dinners for these old Chinese miners who were not, oh my goodness, the... Uh, Carol Bowers is here, who uh, was at the American Heritage Center when Tom and I were doing uh, um, research, and she was amazingly helpful, and it, by coincidence happened to, yeah, yeah, here. sorry, ding, okay, um, now, now I'm nervous because i got to get the history right, um, <laughs> so uh, they, um, uh, uh, they had these events where they would send these old Chinese miners, not send them back, their, their intention was to return to China always, but they ended up being there until the, in Rock Springs till their 80s. So in, in my novel, I have a town that's associated with Rock Springs called Dyer, 
and um, which is where Addie and Wing are. And Addie's been invited 40 years later to go back to a luncheon to see this one last Chinese miner off. And I thought um, I would read this just two pages to you to kind of end the evening um, because um, you get to uh, see here, I think, we just had Wing in desperate circumstances smelling smoke. Here's Addie's memory of this, uh, of her desperate ride to save him 40 years later. There wasn't a day that passed when she didn't think about Wing Lee and the circumstances that forced her out of Wyoming without a word to her husband. It was a time when it seemed her only option was to run, and she never felt right about it. She'd agreed to come back, but now she worried about how many folks might be coloring, or coloring up the same way as Buckley, as if there was another Addie Maine, a ghost who'd stayed around Dyer warping the truth about what happened. Sometimes that earlier version of herself seemed like a ghost even to her. She had been so young that day of the riots when she took off from Dyer, rode hot and hard in the saddle toward Rock Springs. She recalled the smallness she hadn't felt since the first month she arrived in Wyoming Territory, riding the hours toward Rock Springs over land so flat and broad it was as if God had spread it out with a table knife. There had been a lot of bad days, but she knew then that September 2nd, 1885 was likely to be her worst. By the time Addie was a mile outside town, it was near dusk, the distance marked by columns of black smoke bleeding into the sky. She reined her ride racer to a stop at the sight of a man limping through the sage, looking wholly dazed as he approached. When he was near, Addie saw that he was Chinese, and one side of his face was beaten raw. She slid off Racer and completed the distance between them, startling him into the rigidness when he grabbed him by the shoulders. What happened? He didn't speak. From the looks of it, he'd been attacked by more than one person. Addie led the man back to Racer, wishing she thought to bring water with her. Let me ride you into town and get you to a doctor, she offered, unsure if he even spoke English. The man slumped to the ground and pulled on his shoulder where his sleeve was torn. No, he said hoarsely, I don't go back. Kneeling, she could barely look at him directly. He was wheezing, and up close it looked like someone had gone on his face with a hay rake. Who did this to you? All, the man said. He was out of breath. They chase us, they shoot. He pointed to his pant leg, which was damp with blood, the color nearly black against the blue cloth. Addie guessed if he'd been shot, he was merely grazed, or he wouldn't be walking. She asked if he knew wing, uh, knew wing, but he shook his head. You can't wander out in the middle of nowhere, she said, though she understood his limited options. The black smoke was certainly a kind of flag, warning him away from the white fist beneath it. What gets into folks, she asked herself, turning, turning into savages. Practically from the moment she arrived in the territory, she'd heard Chinamen called all manner of things, had been warned that they were like animals. Just a year earlier, she'd never seen one in her life, but by the time she got off the train, she had been convinced they were practically kin to wolves. And now look at who the animals turned out to be. Even her husband, Mook, who'd once seemed so even-tempered, had turned. It wasn't two weeks earlier he was bragging about beaming a Chinese miner in the back of the head with a rock and getting away with it. Blood came, he said, smiling. 
She stood and got her bearings, pointing in the distance to the straight line running through the valley. There she saw other forms. From the distance, they looked like dark blue beetles on the run. Best thing for you is get near the tracks. It was a sad reality that this man and those in the distance more or less belonged to the UP, and she was certain the men who ran it would find a way to round up their property. With Addie's help, he pulled himself to his feet, but refused to let her put, put him on racer. He stared straight ahead at the tracks where Addie directed, then moved forward at a slow, stumbling pace. She wondered if this looked like the kind of failure vultures catch from the corners of their eyes. It wasn't a thought she lingered on long because keeping Wing alive was her priority, and in that moment she made a decision. When she got to Rock Springs, when she found Wing, she would throw him on the back of Racer and they would ride out. Ride to California or maybe to the territories in the Northwest, but she would take him as far as necessary to get him to safety. She was never so sure about anything in her life as at that moment, even if it meant eventually waving goodbye to him from a dock as he went back to his homeland. Maybe that was the best thing. Maybe it was near impossible, but it was the only way. Addie wondered if Wing was in similar shape as the man she had just met, or if he was still in Rock Springs at all. If it was the former, he might be all right. But if it was the latter, he needed her help. And since she was the one who made him leave Dyer for Rock Springs, it would be her fault if he got hurt, she thought. She wouldn't let it happen. No questions? Yeah, you're welcome. To, to, yeah. No pity questions. <laughs> I have a question, it's not a pity question. Uh-huh. Is it painful writing? I mean, um, things about <laughs> Chinese people and calling them names and getting to the minds of people who, who hate them? Uh, what's painful is Try, when you're writing a, about an event like that, it's trying not, to not have it come off like a freak show. In other words, you're writing about this massacre, and, and it, a lot of it gets illustrated in the novel. Not a lot, but a significant amount gets illustrated in the novel. And I, you kind of, those are people who are really killed, and I know this sounds weird, but you kind of want to be respectful of that moment. And, and, and as a, for me, at least as a writer, I don't want to just be like, oh, look at this really cool thing I found, and I'm just, I, you know, it's going to be perfect for a novel. So I, was re I, I would really try to, to you know, find that line where I could be respectful of the event, and um, yeah, I'll just leave it at there. Yeah. Um, and you guys can write me emails about how disrespectful I was. <laughs> Pity, pity emails, that's right, right, right. I know they're all just going to go up on the shelf and you say, oh, it was so good. Yeah. Um, any other questions? Yeah. So a lot of your other books are more personal. How is this one, this is kind of like your first book that you kind of stepped out and writing this for post your first few books? Um, I, yeah, well, it was kind of a purposeful project for me to do something in which I wasn't, I, I clearly couldn't draw on um, events from my own life or, um, you know, there are no telephones or cell phones in this or anything that, any kind of visual images that are familiar to me, you know, that, and so it, it required, and I was looking for this challenge, it required for me to really kind of 
wholly imagined a space. I mean, the landscape, obviously, I went there and I was engaged in the landscape in a real way, but, you know, there was cars and those kind of things, and, 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 that, and then that said, I, I have started out having no idea how a woman from Kentucky, a teenager, could even get from Kentucky to the Wyoming territories, um, or even in 1927, I had to call the Union Pacific Railroad and ask them, "What's the route from in 1927 to get from you know from Los Angeles, where she is, lives in the novel, to to Wyoming?" And then there's a chapter in here which I didn't read, but I'm familiar with a kind of like a lot of the basic history of Chinese immigrants coming to Gold Mountain. But I didn't really have any kind of personal sense of what that really meant. And so I did a lot of research trying to, f to find what it was like kind of just really viscerally to be a Chinese person in, in the bottom of a boat for mo you know, going across the ocean and arriving in this, this new space. And um, you know, uh, it was really, it felt like a really dangerous thing because it's kind of like that being respectful thing where I just, I had this huge fear with both of them, both characters, that I would just start inventing things that weren't, you know, that were just convenient for me. So I, you know, when I got through a first draft, the very first thing I did on my first read was go question all of those, those things, things I wrote in that, in that nature. You know, was that, is that Brian just thinking, oh, this is what I would have felt like, or, is, you know, so. I have a question. Mm -hmm. And it's a stressful question in writing. Uh, when you approach, you know, writing your story, now your story uh, isn't linear. You go back and forth. Were your first roughs linear, and then you started to go back and forth and uh, give it its, its current, you know, its final structure? How did you arrive at that? Uh, well, uh, by way of explanation, let me say this. There was another, even another layer on top of this, which was, uh, and uh, I think, Tom read this version where there was a woman inserted here kind of strangely who has no association with any of these characters in kind of the, in the I guess the 50s and, and she was going through her husband's National Geographics and all his old papers and she discovers a, a newspaper article about the riots and I had her in three sections kind of like to illustrate like how history lives on and blah 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 and then there was an epilogue where like 30 years after this, when Addie's in her 90s, you know. Um, so the way the structure of the novel is now is a result of taking away those el other elements. And then I saw what remained, and uh, what I what remained was kind of a, I think, a kind of a classic story. So um, where I was trying to be, I think, a little postmodern with the other stuff. And so then I, I kind of gave myself permission to do the bookend thing, where I have older Addie at the beginning and end, and she's also in the middle, but you know, that's a very kind of traditional thing to do. I also call the chapters episodes, not, not chapters, because I'm in a way kind of recalling, without the campiness of it, but recalling, I think, like the Saturday morning serial in some ways. Does that make sense? I don't, I was, I was thinking, oh, this is a kind of a classic story, but I also kind of felt like, gosh, it, in some ways, it's kind of a Western also. So I, I, in the end, I felt like it needed a, a kind of a classic structure imposed on it. Um, and uh, I will say that this is where an editor com comes in really, really handy. Because I had to you know, 
let go of some babies. <laughs> the, the most beautiful thing I've ever written, I, I, some, maybe someday it'll come out in the, you know, the 50 year anniversary edition, is, the, is that last, the epilogue chapter of her, you know, it's, she's in her 90s and here's this woman looking back on everything, you know, and, and um, you, and you, I find a way for her to be with, to, um, to find kind of like this kind of ultimate happiness without being cheesy about it. It's really pretty and I, I'm still angry at my editor for, <laughs> for being right, you know, yeah. Anything else? When you went to Wyoming, was the story already in place or did that travel kind of inform the story or change what you had thought about? I, I had the characters in mind. I had the characters in mind. I had, um, I didn't really have this idea of why, sh why they would be there together. So, um, the homesteading, learning about that was really important. I think where the novel really changed for me, well, let's set the, his the, let's set the research part aside because, I mean, um, where it really changed for me was being out in the landscape and, and consciously thinking about this, these square miles where my characters would be and what, you know, how interesting can a novel be if they're just out there wandering around? So what are the... What, and I do get a little Alfred Hitchcocky, like there's the white dunes, you know, there's like these landmarks there, you know, like this thing happens there, but that's okay. Um, but I, I, that was the real changing point for me because each of these, each of these places that I went to, um, and, and this was by myself, um, I, I just, maybe it was because of the time of day I visited or whatever, different times of day, but I found kind of a different emotional register in, in the atmosphere and and so that kind of and I would just write right there and say what am I what am I what are what am I feeling right now not like this but you know what is what what would these characters be feeling what would they be doing and um, and uh, it's not a travel log so I really wanted I if, if they were gonna have any key moments in their relationship I was like well why not put them in these places and then how does that if they're on Pilot Butte which has this amazing 360 degree view of, of the Wyoming landscape well that changes the way you think about the world when you when you can just see like endless possibilities. And so then, when they're in the middle of a conversation in that moment, I was really able to kind of keep that in mind, right? That that well, I won't go further than that. Does that answer your question? What changes about the research is it, it uh, for me is that I mean it's really interesting, but it also um, changes the novel because your hands get tied in places where you you didn't like. There's a mind collapse. And um, in the novel, and it's not like it's, I mean they're they've got these little hats on that have little flames on them, and and it, uh, I didn't even think about the fact that oh, I want this the scene to happen, this big big scene to happen, and this mind collapse. And they can't. How can she see anything in there? Like and and then how does she? get people out and how do they, I mean, so doing the research I realized there was a lot of stuff I just couldn't do because, you know, I think I was thinking like superheroes and stuff like that. <laughs> she picks up a boulder and moves it to the side. Yeah. So some of you will come to Dresden, right, and, and chat and some of you will stay afterwards and, and chat and some of you I, I, I will probably um, maybe want me to sign a book um, and I'm happy to do that, so. Thank you. Okay.
You have been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.